Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 52, and I'm Roger Pang from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I'm here with Hillary Parker of Stitch Fix. This is our first podcast of 2018. Yeah, really exciting. Good year. Although, as I, I think I talked briefly, last year was a good year for me. Was How was your 2017? It was overall quite good, I think. Yeah, I mean, you were in Australia for half of it, so that yeah, was cool. It could have been a lot worse. Yeah. So looking forward to uh, an at least as good 2018, wouldn't you say? Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Yes. Start off great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, so obviously we haven't, we haven't been on the air in a little while, so there's a little bit of follow-up. Um, and uh, last episode, we talked, we had a quite a, you know, a longer than I was expecting discussion about Excel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, like right, I right. thought that topic was going to be like a throwaway topic. It ended up being like a 30-minute discussion. So uh, You should never assume like talking about Excel is a throwaway topic. Like there's just too much emotion, you know, that comes out from basically everyone. It might it I might be happening it. again as we as we speak, so we we'll have to watch out. Yeah. Um <laughs> so the first one I think is quick. Basically the, this came out, I don't know if you saw it, um that um in the one of the ex, Microsoft Excel support forums or something like that, they asked, you know, how can we improve Excel for Windows? And um, and one of the suggestions was to add Python as an Excel scripting language, um, as opposed as opposed to Visual Basic, which is kind of what uh, people use now. And uh, there was some commentary. Apparently, this got a lot of votes, and there was some commentary along the lines of like, if they did this, they like all of a sudden there'd be like the number of Python users would be like through the roof, like overnight, basically. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. It would be, they would have to scale efforts substantially. Yeah. I I don't know what the implications for like Python development would be. That would be interesting to think about, like having all these Excel users now be Python users or, or some subset of them be Python users, like how that would affect the development of Python, the language um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the issue that R's run into to some degree. I mean, both R and Python, where you have all these, all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but fairly quickly, you had a bunch of industry folks come on board and want to use the languages. And that has changed, you know, how, uh, that certainly changed how R core operates from what I understand. Yeah, yeah. and well, just, you know, the heterogeneity, the increase in the heterogeneity of the, of the uh, community uh, has a has, you know it affects the way it, it affects the development of the language it affects the prioritization of certain things um, and I just I feel like, I just feel like the Excel community is seems very different from the what I think of as the Python community and maybe I'm wrong about that but um, it's it seems like it would be a if, a big shift yeah it would be a big shift for sure but. I mean, well, I wonder what Microsoft standards are for, like, who writes Visual Basic? Is that itself a Microsoft language? I I believe it is, yes. I think Microsoft develops it, yeah. Yeah, because I was going to say, there's no way that they're going to include that in one of their flagship products without, (laughs) like, a huge degree of control over it. You know, it's not just going to be like, oh, hey, we added support for this open source language, like, go for it. You don't think so? Well, I mean, Microsoft has been shifting lately, so maybe. 
Yeah. Right. I guess I I never thought about that. Like I I I kind of thought that yeah they, that they might do that. I don't know. They might just say hey we're supporting Nick Python, but it's a good point actually. They might not want to do that if they have zero control over the development of the language. Yeah, yeah. I think I think for that specific type of integration they would want it. But that being said, I know that, and I'm so not up to speed on the latest products that they have, but I know that there's some like. Um, like machine learning layer that does integrate into Excel. Like they, if you abstract one level away from inside the application Excel, then I think there are ways to get like using Microsoft products to get like R into Excel, um, like Azure or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, in the actual application itself would be that would be like. I mean, can you imagine if there was a bug and like it made Excel not work? Like that would be <laughs> <laughs> that would be like be catastrophic. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think Microsoft would be okay with that. So, well, we will track further developments. I don't think anything's uh, progressed since this happened, but we'll see what happens in the future. Yeah, that's that is interesting yeah. to think about, but. Um, yeah. like I mean, just to, sorry, just to, one more thing. Like, I guess could you see them incorporating R into something? Like, so imagine if you could, like, in Excel, just say like you know equals lm this and that, you know, or whatever. I guess. Yeah. yeah, I know it's funny because I actually think R might be a more appropriate language for that specific type of user. You know, I think I think there is at least I feel like there may be an unstated agreement that R is typically the language someone with no programming experience like that's a like someone with no programming experience who wants to up their data analysis game usually will go to r versus python um and so versus python's more like someone who is a software engineer wanting to do some data science um and so i feel like r might be more appropriate but like that's i don't think i don't think r core would would be like excited about that <laughs> increase in their <laughs> in their you know the number of tickets that they get yeah yeah. <laughs> but, yeah i have no idea though i mean this is all basically pure speculation on my part <laughs> all right um regarding our conversation about excel so for just a reminder last time we talked a little bit about using spreadsheet software like excel to do kind of manage like personal finances. And I, um, I was talking about how I tried to kind of shift to like using R and, and it, I'd done it twice and both times it kind of didn't work for me. Um, and I couldn't quite put my finger on like why it was that I preferred using spreadsheets for this kind of work, personal finance kind of stuff as opposed to like data analysis software. Um, and so uh, Daniel McNichol on Twitter said, uh, the spreadsheet thing seems obvious to me. Roger almost got there. Uh, personal finance is m more about record keeping than data analysis. Data capture, not stats. Uh, for this and related uses, spreadsheets are, and he says, greater than, uh, meaning I guess better than uh, statistical computing. Um, and like, I, I kind of see what he's saying. I'm not 100% true that is the reason. I, I don't know about the record keeping versus data analysis uh, categorization. Um, obviously, well, it's not like you couldn't. You could keep the record keeping in Google Sheets and just like use Jenny's Google Sheet package to read it into R. So yeah, and then, like I mean, there is analysis that's being done in terms of like if you do projections or 
you're doing summary statistics. Uh, so I don't know. I don't think that's really what it is. I just uh, I still can't put my finger on it. But <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking about this. I can't remember if I said it on the last episode or not. But I think what we're almost running into it's like it's like um, the dashboard issue where you want a dashboard where you can kind of watch things and monitor it and do like do like a million little calculations in your head you know, when you see new numbers come in, maybe not a million, but maybe like five to 10. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you want to like, you want to monitor it and like watching the, the act of watching it is itself the end point. It's not the act of making a decision. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's ultimately what it is. Yeah. And I know, I know when Jenny did her big, um, Jenny Bryan from our studio now, um, when she did her big, like kind of, Excel spreadsheet, like, you know, analysis, like a sentiment analysis or like interviewing people about why they use Excel. The idea of Excel um, and spreadsheets acting as a little mini real-time dashboard is definitely part of um, the appeal. It's like a, it's like a standalone delivery mechanism of both the data and visualization analysis of the data. Um, and so I wonder if it's sort of that at play. Yeah. No, I think I think it's not sort of that. I think it is that. Um, I like, yeah, just seeing the seeing things update in real time and, you know, it's just it's part of the experience, I think. But I wonder if you wrote yourself the right dashboard if you would like that more. Well, how would it be different? <laughs> I guess, I, I mean, I guess the, the data, the data and the presentation of the data would be separate. That would be the advantage, right? I mean. Yeah. Well, and you could do like some, you could see if, I mean, I think the issue here is that it's not so straightforward what you're trying to do with it. So it's like, what distributions are you looking for? What sort of like drifts or like trends are you looking for? And it can be kind of hard to, I feel like it's just kind of like a complex thing that you're looking for. And so it's actually kind of hard to design the right type of analysis to get it, all those complexities. Yeah. I think part of the issue also is that the spreadsheet is playing like five different roles at once. Like it's playing the presentation layer. It's playing the input. Like, so that's how I input the data. Um, that's also how I retrieve the like different sources of data for either from the internet or from elsewhere. Uh, and so it's like, it's playing, it's got, it's wearing multiple hats. And I think, in reality, the kind of thing that you would probably want is essentially like a database uh, based system, you know, like a QuickBooks or like a whatever, uh, like this financial software is kind of designed for you, like for you to like input transactions and then they get stored in a database and they can be kind of reported out elsewhere. And that's the kind of thing ultimately that, that I'm kind of converging towards, but I don't want to like do that. Right. So I'm just kind of using this spreadsheet as like the catch all for everything, basically. Yeah, man. Have I told you about my like my Google Forms system? No. Like I'm obsessed with Google Forms now. Okay. <laughs> so I actually created this to file expenses. Like many startups, Stitch Fix is like transitioning expense reporting, but like many startups, it was originally Excel based, right? And so you had to capture all of your expenses for the month as like lines in a spreadsheet. And it it caused me so much anxiety. I it just I don't know why I'd worry about missing stuff. Like I'd rather just file expenses right when they come in. 
um, versus like at the end of the month being like, oh man, I forgot I took that lift from the airport, got to add that in. And so um, I wanted like a real time reporting, but I did not want that to be me opening Excel <laughs> in order to write this stuff down, which is like so silly, but whatever, that's, that's where I was at. And so I actually finally figured out that I could make a Google form just for myself that is like, all of the column names for the Excel sheet are in the Google form. So it's like, okay, what date is it? And it's nice because Google forms has like a little like interactive date thing, like the calendar image, and you can click on that. And then the next one is like, you know, what type of expense? And I have a dropdown that had all the options from the form, like the Excel sheet itself had a dropdown. And so I just replicated that. And I even deleted all the ones that don't apply to me, which I'm also really proud of. Um, and then uh, the killer here is that Google Forms added support for uploading documents. So I just like take a picture of the receipt or print out the PDF if it's a, if it's like a e-receipt. And I just literally upload that via that link. Um, and it can be like a screenshot for my phone or whatever. So you can upload that and then you just have to, the annoying extra step is that then you have to like share that with whoever is like needs to see it in the org or just like switch it to visible. Anyway, the point is I, I basically, and then I added a shortcut to that form onto my phone home screen. Nice. So like <laughs> I basically created like an app for myself and then I just have to copy that, those form results into uh, the spreadsheet at the end of the month. And it, it made me so happy the first time it took me like three minutes to file my expenses. I was just like, this was successful. Wait, so anyway, the, the data would end up in like a Google sheet somewhere. Yeah. It ends up in a Google sheet just like, yeah, like in all in kind of predictable format. Um, so you can do, you could do your analysis from, you could, you could in the existing world create a, a separate capture system that like mimics a lot of that accounting software or personal finance. You know, it's like you don't have to go to QuickBooks quite yet. <laughs> you can start to capture things. I actually wanted to do that for various like podcast expenses and, you know, business expenses. And anyway, this I, I was so excited about this that I wrote instructions for my entire team and like on our like wiki and sent it out. I was like, I have the answer. <laughs> you can have like a, a saner life. And a couple people replied out of my 80 person team. So I consider that a win. <laughs> I guess, yeah, you're kind of like using the spreadsheet as like the back as like the kind of like underlying back end. It was like the database. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, any more on that? No, I'm not sure if I even <laughs> really address the actual issue. But I think, I don't know, I guess to get back to the original point. Yeah, I think um, I think the like dashboarding thing. I feel like there's so much psychology around dashboarding that I don't I don't feel like I have my head wrapped around at all. Because um, there's pros and cons to monitoring a dashboard. And I feel like there's a lot of cons that aren't usually discussed so um i think the, the my final point was that like say what you will about dashboards um but there is i think one thing that we can agree on that it's probably not great to have the dashboard and the data be the same thing <laughs> like it's like if the dashboard reads data from somewhere then then that's fine and you can criticize the dashboard for whatever it is um but you know the dashboard and the data being in exactly the same place it's like it's it's pro it's 
that's not good. <laughs> and that's literally what a spreadsheet is, right? So, um, okay. So we can finally move on from Excel talk. <laughs> um, so on David Dye uh, on Twitter asked, uh, he said a while back on one of the episodes, you mentioned the project template package for uh, for project management in R. Wondering if you still use that one or is there a better alternative? And this is a question specifically for you. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I do still use it and it's still being actively developed. Um, I think the space is wide open for someone to create like a thoughtful solution to this. I think I think project the project template project specifically has um, suffered a little from scope creep, which is super common where like, you know, people start having feature requests and you don't really have a way of triaging them. And so you start adding stuff. And then so like I look at it now and there's a bunch of things that I don't use and I don't really know what it means. And I'm like, well, whatever, you know, I still use it for the basic functionality. So, um, you know, I think that I think some big players are looking into this problem a little more, but I'm not totally sure. I What I really liked about it was being opinionated um, and having, you know, a way like setting forth the principles of how you should be doing the analysis, not just like, oh, you know, here's a million features. Um, so I, I'm kind of concerned that it's veering from that. But, you know, I welcome their comments if they feel like they're not. Um, but, yeah. Um, so the answer is... You haven't come across any kind of alternatives, I guess. No, not yet. No. Yeah. So, okay. so but you are still using it. I am. Yeah. And I still, I still like it. Uh, and I still, yeah, I still like it and I still use it. Um, I just, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I do switch in the next year or so. Um, especially if like, I feel like there's some pro I don't want to blow up the spot of certain projects. So I do think that there's people thinking seriously about this problem. Um, and I'm excited for what they're doing. Um, I just can't, they have not been released yet, so I don't want to like blow up anyone's spot. Yeah, yeah. And they yeah. might never be, so I don't want to act like it's like, you know. I am excited for progress in this space. Basically, is what I'm saying. Okay, <laughs> we will monitor it for future episodes. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the next thing I want to talk about is we're done with follow up, but I uh, there was a little bit of a Twitter kind of thread that occurred. Uh, oh wow! Almost like a month ago now, um, that I want to talk to you about because it, it does kind of touch on some of the ideas that we have discussed in previous episodes. Um, so this comes from um, Lee Tammy T A M I, who is CPO of the City of Cincinnati. I'm not sure what the director of Cincy Stat, um, and. Uh, Anyway, so she's in Cincinnati. <laughs> and um, she posted something on Twitter, and I have to bring it up now. It says, so, so, the, so the tweet was, if you really want to do something useful with data, especially civic data slash open data, uh, quit trying to run multivariable regressions and go talk to the people who input slash create the data instead. Rinse, uh, rinse and repeat until you understand that data is more about people and less about using R. Um, and I think there's a, there's a way to read that. That's kind of like, she's like throwing shade or whatever, but I don't think that's what that she meant. I mean, I think, um, 
I and, oh, then after that, there's a follow up that says ten out of ten times you'll learn more about the data from actually talking to a cop or a firefighter or a sanitation worker for five minutes than you will if you sit in front of a computer trying to do trend analysis for five weeks. So, and I think we talked about this. I think it was probably two episodes ago about how you know, like the 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 understanding like how the data is actually collected is like there's a lot of insight that you can get there, um, and. Uh, and I think this just kind of like is along those lines. And I think it's like, in, it, I feel like in a way it's a very, it's kind of depressing <laughs> if, it, if it's true, right? Because I think it is true because, you know, that, that means that, that there's like, it, what it suggests, I guess, is like that the, the, the collection of data is just woefully inadequate, right? Um, yeah. And... But something truly fundamental is obviously missing, right? If this is oh, if this is true, quote ten out of ten times, right? Um, mm-hmm. And um, well, for civic data type stuff. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. So if, yeah, I think, that, and that's what she's talking about. I think. Um, right. And uh, just a little bit of follow up to that. So Brian Lang, I guess, um, it says, you know, in my experience, it's because the total context data is created. Or sorry. In my experience, it's because the total context data is created in isn't probably realistically can't be uh, captured or taken into account when you're exploring it quantitatively. Um, but it's obvious to people who are part of the system that created the data, right? Uh, and I think that that's key. Like there is like there's other stuff that's kind of like related to the data that people who kind of deal with it every day don't even think about probably. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, but is yeah. relevant to like an analysis of that data, right? Um, so I I don't know I just so I, this has to do with just kind of like, um, to me to the way the way that data analysis like cannot be uh, commoditized you know it's like because uh, if it's always like you have to talk to people who correct who or you have to kind of understand get a better understanding of the process by which the data were collected then it's like there's always going to be like a tremendous amount of friction involved in doing a data analysis well because there's so much information that's not there when you look at a data set right. Yeah. <laughs> so give up. That's what you're saying. <laughs> well, that's not what that's not what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I no. think my what I was going to say it's the, it's those darn human beings getting in the way all the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you're someone who likes the world to be orderly and everyone to be on the same page and everything to make sense and humans to be generally logical, <laughs> that's probably not (laughs) civic analysis probably isn't the place for you (laughs) but part of me what you know there's a lot of stuff out there a lot of like like data analysis competitions and prediction competitions and and there's kaggle competition like it makes me wonder like what are those people doing you know (laughs) know? yeah right uh, I, i don't think they're doing anything wrong this like specifically it's just that like if this is true, then like, are those people just completely wasting their time? Like, I don't know. I, yeah. just, I don't know. I feel like there's a huge distinction between human input data and machine input data. Like, I, I feel like a lot of the Kaggle stuff are related to clicks on the internet somehow. You know, like things that are recorded in a more general, like, I don't know what the right word is, but a more standardized way versus like I feel like what this person was talking about which I totally buy is that you know like when you're talking about police records and like you know murder weapon or you know 
like number of deaths due to like we talked about this with like the pollution stuff like how do you account how many deaths happen from pollution or from like a hurricane you know that's not i think i feel like my read on that and maybe i'm totally wrong is that she's talking about that like the type of police records and things that are there's a lot of thought process before the data point is generated um, right and i think the systems through which the data are collected are 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 somewhat um what's the word um kind of ad hoc i guess mm -hmm. exactly yeah like at some point there's someone transcribing something into a spreadsheet and changing you know there's a lot of subjectivity versus stuff that's observed you know things that is like there's no human between the observation and the recording of the observation I feel like that's not it's not hopeless there necessarily. Yeah, yeah, and I think like situations where there's a uh where there's like a very strong design um and a kind of intention to collect data in a certain way um that then it's fine, but I think a lot of a lot of civic data just kind of just happened to be collected basically. Um and and you never really know kind of what the circumstances were or you know or why did they start collecting here instead of you know, before or whatever, you know, so, um, it's, I think it's way messier in those kinds of, and messier in a sense that cannot be resolved within the data. You know, it's like, um, uh, like some data problems can be resolved, like just by dealing with doing something with the data set, but those kinds of situations are are messing in a way that you have to go outside the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, one example that popped into my mind while you were like talking about the tweet was, um, it was a it was an analysis. I remember learning it in grad school. It was analysis of um, people's heart rate, um, and they're like, "We really want the nurses to do a full minute of counting someone's pulse, so not like not do half a minute and double it." But when you looked at the data, it was like all even numbers. Like the distribution was really wonky. Um, just looked like kind of like teeth or something. And so it was like really clear that people were still doubling the numbers. And so. Even though I totally understand like the like you should talk to people rather than looking at the data, but I feel like there's also low hanging fruit sometimes in the data where you can like rather than like getting in your car and driving and interrupting a nurse to ask her to tell you like exactly how she takes the pulse, like you could also just literally like look at a histogram and figure it out too. <laughs> You know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you, can, so, you can make a reasonable inference as to what what's going on. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I it's funny because I really should agree with this in spirit, and I think I mostly do. Like I still have echoing in my head um, from grad school. Also, like uh, Ciprian Cranichano talking about like like never believe any nutrition studies like because <laughs> recording data in those circumstances is like basically impossible. Like asking someone what they ate yesterday, you're not going to get very accurate results. Um, and it's like very, very hard to do a nutrition study where you've done appropriate data collection. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know if you share that sentiment or not. Um, well, I think it, it, it definitely in certain contexts, you know, there's a huge measurement problem and nutrition, I think is one of them. Uh, but um, I, what, I think what the thing that kind of, bothers me a little bit is that like the implications of something like this or a comment like this are that you know the data themselves 
don't matter as much, but rather the things outside the data matter more. Uh, and I think in a lot of cases that is true just because of the nature of the problem. But um, it, it suggests that like these things that are outside the data are more important and maybe uh, will drive any sort of conclusions that are made as opposed to the analysis itself. But don't you think the analysis should have the appropriate model and that the model is derived from what actually happened? Yeah, no, yeah. So to the extent that these outside things help you to kind of formulate an appropriate model, then that's good, I think. Um, right. But yes. No, I mean, I, no, I, I like, so that's the thing. If it's, if the model is, I think that understanding the process in which the data collected was collected will help you build the appropriate model. But I guess I don't see it from her. I mean, I she made the comment about um, like don't look at R, um, which I get how that's like. It, I mean, Twitter is the character limit. You can't express yourself very concisely. Like I feel like it's not as much an either or, but I think it is saying that absent. Absent, like, um, absent some knowledge of the process in which it was created, you can't, you can't create the right model for it, potentially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. And I think there is a subset of the kind of data science world that I think she's commenting on that kind of just grabs the data and then grinds away at it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that, and, and so this, and I think that assumes that any information that is needed to draw an appropriate conclusion is encoded somehow in the data set. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know what? I have to say, I really agree with her on that because I feel like I've run into that a ton. And that does get back to the original thing we were talking about a couple weeks ago or a couple episodes ago, which was, you know, having the expertise in the area really helps you like very quickly hone in on the right model. Whereas, if 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 you're not thinking about that and you're just looking at the data and being like, "Ooh, I want to try this new method," like it's it's really rare that that is going to generate huge insights from my experience as a data scientist. So yeah. that, to me, that raised. I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think, but to me, it raises the question of like, you know, there's a lot of work being done on like model selection techniques for. Well, model selection techniques, right? And, um, and but of course, all of those <laughs> techniques are premised on using the data, right? Obviously, yeah. Um, yeah. But the question is, how much weight do you put on the data informing your model, as opposed to like things outside the data? For which, I mean, you, there may be like other data that you can get, in which case the data is part of the data, or there just may be like other information that you like have in your mind. And you use that to kind of like modify the model. But that modification is not informed by data that's observed, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, or like even, I I always love the term like featureization. It's like, what, what do you even try to get at when you're building features for your model? Like what, I, I feel like featureization is a really great example of where outside knowledge gets implicitly baked into some sort of model. It's like, Oh yeah, rather than looking at, you know, just when someone signed up, we put we look at when they signed up and when they, you know, clicked on the website first or some, you know, something like that where you're trying to get at um a new like a you're trying to get closer to the actual thing that you care about <laughs> rather than just the data you have. Um 
And that's usually, you know, that'll be something that's baked into an ETL. And so the end user, the end data scientist usually just sees like this, in this like implied imputed in the, what's the right word for it? Just like this calculated value. And they're just using that as though it were data. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there's, but like, I mean, we're also, I don't know, like, <laughs> when are we not just making up models and seeing if they work? Like, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not like new. <laughs> there's no objective way to choose the model because there's infinitely many to test, right? Well, I guess one question to ask would be, is there any, is there any, should you even bother using the data to choose the model? Mm. Right, or should you just create a model and then maybe tweak it a little bit? Yeah, I don't know. That's hmm. a bit too extreme, perhaps. But uh, you know, it's like I guess it's hard because a lot of like uh, more complex methodology these days kind of they bake in the model selection. The model selection process is like part of fitting it the model basically, right? And so it's not it's not such a clear cut. It's not like a clear cut answer there, uh, but. Um, I guess, I mean, a lot of model selection these days is just trying this and trying that, right? So, um, right. I guess maybe... The well, but then I feel like in those examples, you would do a fair amount of featureization first before you set this, you know, self-learning model loose. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. you would... In like a in like a tech company setting or like a website setting, you would probably not use something that's raw from the logs. You would probably like have some sort of, even if it's a very simple model first in order to create the features that are used in this other setting. And so, I don't know. I, I feel like the, the like understanding the process has to be there somewhere, even if it's just abstracted away from the quote unquote model selection. It's just like, okay, you, you like did all the manual model selection ahead of time and now you can do like a fancy thing, but you know, ignore that object, subjective part at the beginning. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's totally automatic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I yeah. I'm sure there's like a gajillion counterexamples to everything we're saying right now. <laughs> well, I, don't know so, about, I don't know about a gajillion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a real number or not. It uh it might be. It comes up it frequently in this podcast though. Oh really? It's just my favorite. It's like a verbal tick of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I just wanted to, I thought that was an interesting, it was, it was like one of the rare Twitter threads, Twitter threads that, that was like an interesting discussion, you know, it didn't devolve into like, I don't know. Wait, did, but people, did people give her a hard time about like, don't just use R? No, actually. No. Yeah. That part didn't really get picked up actually. It was more about like measurement and kind of. Yeah. Data. Yeah. I mean, it's just such an extreme example with civic data. I mean, I I have no... Like, we talked about that person doing the um, serial killer predictions using, like, murder data. And that was like, oh my gosh, he's doing so much, like, drudgery, you know? It's like, it is not, like, a quote-unquote sexy data science problem. Like... <laughs> It's like a lot of him like calling police departments and asking for records and verifying records. And, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've always thought that problem was really hairy. And I think it's cool that people work in such a kind of frustrating environment. 
<laughs> I have lots of respect for that. All right. So uh, you want to move on to your topic? Yeah, sure. Yeah, my topic. I think you'll enjoy it, hopefully. Um, which is that, so a few weeks ago um, in The Atlantic, there was um, an article called Neuroscience Has a Lot to Learn from Buddhism. <laughs> So I've been reading a lot about meditation and stuff. And um, so this is uh, a, a guy who has a couple books. He has one coming up now, which is why this article happened. But it's um, he was, I believe, um, he was a molecular biologist. And then he left and became a Buddhist monk in Nepal. Um, and so there's, there's a book of him. I think his father is a philosopher. So there's one book of them discussing science. It's like these very intense conversations, like very, um, a lot of substance to them. And so he has one book with his father. And so now he has a second book that came out that is um, this guy, Matthew Ricard, talking with um, a neuroscientist um, about like studying the brain, essentially. Um, and I thought it was really, really interesting. I feel like one of the big misperceptions about meditation is that it's like trying to calm yourself down. Um, and I really enjoyed this framing cause it was talking about, um, it's like, it's like a mode of studying the mind essentially. Like meditation is all about like observing yourself and your mind and how it, how it operates, um, by not reacting when things come up. So like, an emotion comes up and rather than getting swept away in the emotion and not realizing it came up, like someone who's like a really experienced meditator will just be like, that's interesting that like white hot anger is coming up right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> and like, what is that about? Um, not even like an analyzing it, but just like noticing it. Um, and so this neuroscientist, um, like they started to talk about like, how is this different than neuroscience? Um, and so Matthew Ricard is talking about like, you know, this is this is just one of many methods of inquiry into understanding the human mind and the human brain. Um, and so then um, Singer is like intrigued by this, you know, and he's just like, well, you know, this is like your object of inquiry is, you know, the mental apparatus. And it's also your your analytical tool is introspection. And it's like a very self-referential thing um, versus like Western science is like very like third person perspective of like, okay, we like scan the brain and saw these connections and whatever. But, you know, they both make the comment that like you can't really like you can certainly look for like neural, you know, connections and whatever using a third person observation of the mind. But like you basically only have a first person account when you're talking about how brains work <laughs> or like what the inside experience of a mind is. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, what I liked about this discussion where it actually starts to connect to us is um, they talked about like, okay, how do you, how do you know something's valid? Like if you're talking about people self-reporting, then, you know, like, how do you know what they're saying is valid? Um, so this, the guy, the neuroscientist, his name is, um, what is it? Wolf Singer. And so he asked this question of, um, like what guarantee that the introspective technique, what, what guarantees that the introspective technique for dissecting of mental phenomenon is reliable? Um, you know, if it is the consensus among those who consider themselves experts, how can you compare and validate subjective mental state? Um, 
And, you know, there's nothing another person can look at and judge as valid. The observers can only rely on verbal testimony of the subjective states. Um, and so then Matthew Ricard comes back and says, well, this is the same with scientific knowledge. You first have to rely on credible testimony of a number of scientists, but later you can train in the subject and verify the findings firsthand. And so that's sort of like, you know, like repeating experiments, right? And coming up with the same conclusion or repeating a data analysis and coming up with the same conclusion. And then you start to trust those people. Um, and so he's like, this is similar to contemplative science. You first need to refine the telescope of your mind and the methods of investigation to find out for yourself what other contemplatives have found and agreed on. Um, anyway, so <laughs> the reason why I thought this was like really interesting and almost like paradigm shifting, I felt like it gave a lot of... Um, I feel like it gave a lot of like precise language around something we've circled around so much, which is like, when is an analysis done? Um, and it's like, the idea is like, like that is this internal state of between you and your like mind of like, you've been convinced of something. And the only way that we can communicate it through other people is kind of like this, like third person narrative. But, um, I don't know. I just thought it was a really interesting concept because I think that this, it's like the kind of like emotional mental state is the act of conveying scientific knowledge, right? Uh-huh. And, but, so like when we talk about all these subjective things with data analysis, I think it's because deep down it's, like when we're talking with other scientists, it's easy because you kind of all have like, subscribe to the same way of being convinced of stuff and like as a society we have but like when you're in a business setting or whatever where it's not quite as clear what's going to make someone believe something and like have that internal experience of believing it I don't it was just like an interesting way of framing it where it's like okay if you think about it as this internal thing that like someone's mind does and that they're only gonna they're gonna be the only people who can really see that happen um, but you have to kind of figure out how to communicate and make that happen. So, well, that seems like the, the key limitation for neuroscience, right? Which is a fairly young field, which is that like, we don't have, uh, the, the instruments really to kind of you know, measure w like what we believe are kind of like true underlying states of the brain. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, um, yeah. and so like the things that we measure are very removed, um, from kind of what we, and we, we, I don't even know if we necessarily have a sense of like what we, what we, of what is the true underlying thing that we're trying to measure, you know, like, um, and so like, uh, it, it actually is, I think it's, so there's a huge measurement problem there in neuroscience. And I think that's what, um, and I think in principle, if you could, uh, if you could crack that problem, then I think there would be there would be a distinction between different approaches, um, because then you could say, okay, well, we're just measuring this thing here that we all agree is like a is an important like state or concept, um, but we're not. I don't think we are doing that with the brain yet, um, and so like we're measuring blood flow and you know, all this other, and like connectivity and all this other stuff. But I don't think we have a good sense of what that is supposed to be a proxy for, right? Right. Um, yeah. It's like, they'll take people who meditate and like do MRIs on them. <laughs> like, please meditate and then we'll do an MRI on you. But we have to just trust you that you're 
you know, in whatever state, like a meditative state when we do it. Um, yeah. But I guess it's like, I think, I think for me more than like commentary on neurosciences, so even though I found that really interesting and I really liked it as a way of framing like the purpose of meditation for like scientists such as ourselves. Um, but I also, I just thought it was interesting to think about this, like, I mean, just kind of thinking about, I'm sure people with like philosophy of science or, you know, psychology of science or whatever, like they might frame this really frequently, but the idea that like we, as a field, we, as like scientists, as a broad field, rely on this like kind of third person testimony as, um, a way of communicating facts. But at the end of the day, what's like communicated, like convincing the truth is really this like first person experience. And, and with data analysis, that's like all of it. (laughs) It's like, did you do a data analysis that caused a person to have that first person like experience? That to me, that seems like a high bar. I guess maybe it's maybe it's appropriate though, um, because and it, it, it might just. I guess that is maybe that that is the reality of how data analysis is successful, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a high bar, <laughs> like convincing people of things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, like, recognizing when you can't convince them of anything. Like, it's, like, you know, some... I don't know. Like, like it, but I feel like it gets at this, like, not grinding yourself into the ground. Like, why there's so many misses with data analysis. It's, like, if you can't... Like, why is communication such a key part of any data analysis process? And the reason why is because the consumers aren't always going to be completely bought into the um like experience like like the same set of thing might not cause them to have that experience of like understanding that this is like what actually happened quote unquote um yeah yeah. and that's why it's so easy to work easy quote unquote to work in like a scientific field because at least everyone's bought into that (laughs) and there's like kind of the rules of engagement versus when there's not rules of engagement you're talking about journalism or something else like it's a really different um it's a really different phenomenon you know um not to 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 call to have too much of a diversion but i think i i was something similar i think it's related to this topic i was listening to a, a podcast um uh unrelated it's called intelligence matters and it's like a national security podcast um and one of the guests was uh michelle flournoy who was um undersecretary of defense um under obama and um and she was they were talking about the you know the you know global foreign affairs whatever and they were talking about the military and and how the military you know is it's one of those things where like the military can only take you so far in any sort of political problem like it can get in the analogy she uses like a football one in terms of like it can get you to the 20 yard line but it can't get you to the end zone um because ultimately what you need you can't just you need to have some sort of political and diplomatic kind of solution at the end um and and i kind of when i heard that it kind of i kind of it got in my mind that, that like in a way that's kind of what data analysis is too it's like the data analysis alone in any situation isn't going to cause the resolution i think 
um, mm-hmm. of a problem. It's like at the end of the day, there has to be some equivalent of like a political settlement or a diplomatic solution or like, you know, there has to be a person to person kind of agreement um, once the data and the evidence have been presented. Like the data and the evidence do not cause a solution to occur, you know, you know by themselves. Um, yeah. And I think where my head's going now is that it's like, okay, so... Yeah, in the military, you have like soldiers. <laughs> Are we talking about like, like data analysis or like the soldiers well, of the I, company? I don't want to. I don't want to draw the connection too closely there. I just, you know, it just that it just triggered something in my head when I heard it. Yeah, no, but it's like I think you're right. Where it's like there's people like I guess what I was thinking about was if you're the type of data scientist who wants to be in the room influencing decision making, you will have to be thinking about what will actually cause the person to experience that like aha moment or whatever you talk about. And, um, and, and, and if they're just, if you have, if you're working with someone who really trusts you, that's pretty easy. They're like, do you believe it? You're like, yeah. They're like, okay, great. I believe it too. Um, but if you're work, working with someone who's a cynic or whatever, or doesn't think that way, then you're going to run into problems. And then that just becomes like whoever's doing that last negotiation, they either have to be the person doing the analysis so they can iterate really quickly, or you just have to be willing as the data person to do what that person asks for a little while <laughs> and be like, if they're like, I really think this is going to convince them, then you just have to go with that. Um, if you don't want to be the person in the room. But I feel right, like data scientists yeah. generally like balk at that where they don't want to be told what to do. They want to be able to do whatever they feel like is needed. Um, like they want to be able to like explore the problem on their own. And so I think that's like that last 20 yard issue is it, it I think that's I think it would be it would serve people well to make almost just like make a decision and act accordingly. And that might mean having a little less control over the data analysis. Um, but obviously staying like truthful because <laughs> there's also that like truth aspect to doing data analysis. Yeah. Um, but not balking when it's like, can you also just give us like the conditional mean breakdowns? <laughs> You're like, <laughs> no, I did this whole model instead. It's like, well, that's what the person's going to want to see, you know? That's gonna that, that that could be the thing that gets them to kind of see it or experience it, right? I exactly, mean. exactly. Like something too complicated, they're they're gonna just be like, "That's a bunch of black box, whatever," and I don't believe it. Um, but if the way that they would convince themselves is to go to Excel and calculate, do a pivot table on a bunch of conditional means, then. You would either need to do that or you need to show them like maybe it's specific examples or whatever, but you need to show them why that falls apart um, in a really convincing way. Anyway, I just really, I, I really like this article. I definitely recommend it, but it just, for me, it was some framing. It was a very clear framing of the problem um, and where I think, because I think data analysis like being uh, like data analysis to influence decision making has to span both like the world where third person perspective and kind of this like scientific truth world is and then also that like first person eliciting belief <laughs> in another human when you can't really observe what will make that person start to believe your results and so or like trust it so anyway i just I thought it added clear to me. It added some clarity of like 
how the complexity of what we do basically <laughs> awesome and uh so we'll put the link to the article in the show notes um i think i i can see this uh becoming a topic uh, that we follow up on in future episodes yeah um, when everyone's like why did you just make me worry like, read like a 20 page <laughs> article about buddhism well it's, i think um, I, I just feel like i yeah. personally need to process it a little bit <laughs> oh yeah no it's like this whole article i read it and was like okay i need to go back and read that again right. <laughs> like it's just it was it was so dense and the thing is, is that this is like an excerpt from a whole book oh, so it's no. just like <laughs> if you want to like really have a head scratcher buy this book <laughs> and his other one right <laughs> but yeah anyway yeah we'll follow up yeah um can we transition into just one final topic sure so uh it, i guess it's it's kind of related but maybe not um so i, I was just thinking about recently about um you know this has been a lot of like news about kind of computer security um with like these intel chips having these security flaws and whatnot and uh it kind of got me thinking about um you know how people think about data analysis um and and in some sense kind of whether they agree with it believe it etc um and i think like uh, like uh, for amongst data scientists and statisticians there's a lot of discussion about uh kind of what I would broadly categorize as quality. Um, so whether you're using the right tests, whether you're making, whether your data meet the assumptions of whatever model or test or, uh, and kind of whether, broadly speaking, kind of whether you're doing things correctly um, and whether you're applying the, the, the appropriate tools to, into, into the appropriate circumstances. Um, but I think there's an, I feel like, now I think there's like there's a whole other aspect of data analysis. It's related to like kind of understanding the, where the data come from. It's related to kind of a variety of factors. But in terms of like whether you whether the data is, whether the analysis is I guess what I would call secure for lack of a better word, um, and um, and the security of the analysis has more to do with not whether it was done correctly, but a more I guess I have a vaguer sense of like whether you trust it or not, right? Uh, and I think, it, and the reason why it's vaguer is that I think it encompasses more factors than than just like what methods were applied, right? Um, there's like you know this pre-processing of data, and there's kind of like whether you have all the relevant contexts and that kind of stuff, right? Um, and so, uh, Wait, so when you talk about secure, can you define that again? Yeah, I don't mean like secure as in like like security as in like computer security. I, I what I mean is that like. Um, I guess the one common element there between like computer security and what I'm talking about is that is that you that you trust that like the thing that you're getting at and the on the as the output um that you trust it right like you trust that what that what, what was done was the appropriate thing and it's not just so about So this is like yeah it's like security like uh psychoanalytical security like this analysis will not abandon you <laughs> right well, the, am well, I understanding I, that correctly <laughs> Well, I don't, I, I don't know, but I, the reason why I use the word security in this context is because I think in computer security, um, uh, you know, things are, you know, if you think about how like encryption and kind of cryptography and that kind of context, a lot of security comes from like networks of trust, right? And so, like, if I 
and I trust like this output because someone else that I trust says that it's okay, right? Right. Um, exactly. And then I trust that other person because someone else said that person's okay. You know, like and so there's like this network of trust that gives us a security in certain like encryption keys or you know whatever it is, right? Um, and that's how kind of security is kind of and or there's like or there's a trusted third party that says that kind of like authorizes that this is like valid and you know this and you can trust this you know output or whatever and so that's kind of what it, why i'm using the word security here because like there's i feel like the way that you you um you, tr- you end up trusting an analysis is through first and foremost kind of like the person who did it right um and then there may be other kind of network aspects to that in terms of like well um in terms of like who trusts that person and you know things like that, I I I'm I'm not saying this is a fact. I'm like I'm kind of talking out loud, thinking out loud here in terms of like I'm wondering if, like if that's how things actually work. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think it's yeah. I mean that's sort of that, that's like almost directly a segue from this article, like talking about like with scientific knowledge, you couldn't possibly do every experiment in order to experience like firsthand. And you kind of buy into the system where, I mean, I don't want to say buy into the system, but like you just, you start to trust certain institutions, certain people who've done experiments and trust those results and the fact that they've published and it's been peer reviewed, like you trust the process. And so therefore you can like not have to do everything yourself, and like experience right. it You firsthand. don't have to start from scratch every time. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, yeah, like... And so a secure, like what you're talking about is how do we even model or describe those types of processes that go on in order to make someone like feel secure about an analysis? Yeah. I don't know about, I don't know if we need to model them, but I just think, how do we understand like what those things are? Right. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, but I think that's, yeah, exactly. I think that's like such a perfect segue because I mean, maybe call it, I, I feel like calling it secure, branding it as secure, <laughs> like, is, uh, <laughs> like, secure analysis. Most people are not going to think of, like, this type of secure. Okay. <laughs> like, I, I, I do not, yeah. I'm willing to give that up. I'm not married to it. Yeah. But, like, having it be, I mean, what about trusted? Like, what? Yeah, that's kind of what, I, I mean, that's really what I'm getting at, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's, like, how... I mean, yeah, I think it's a good... I think if we could actually more effectively train people to suss out someone's internal, like, how they would process information, that would be a huge benefit. You know what I mean? It would be so much easier to convince someone of the analysis results if you knew exactly what they need to experience firsthand. Like, what if they need to, like, play with the data a little let them do that (laughs) right yeah versus if they'll if you say that like someone else did it then what does that mean like it would be that would be very hard to measure but it'd be very helpful if you could yeah yeah and i think like different people you know kind of absorb information in in a variety of ways and you kind of have to uh yeah i kind of have to understand that and and kind of and kind of i guess modify your practice kind of to adapt to that i guess Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, exactly. I, I mean, because yeah. part of me was like a, a simple example would be going back to this kind of civic data analysis. You know, if you know, if two people could get the same data set, right, and 
basically, you know, and they can analyze it. Um, but maybe one person has like a long history of doing civic, of working with civic data, and another person is someone you know you never met before, and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I think I feel like regardless of who those people were, just using that information alone, I feel like that could have an impact on whether you trust the analysis or not, right? I mean, even though it has nothing to do with the data per se, right? Um, and so it's it, it's I, mean, I guess in some in a way it's kind of frustrating right because it does because it doesn't have to do with the data right but on the other hand it's like that's just that's reality right I, no exactly I mean I think that's exactly it like I I feel um, I guess I feel less like disturbed by that perhaps <laughs> because I feel like I am fully bought into the subjectivity or the fact that. Um, the fact that this, like, eliciting the first person aha moment inside someone's head is, like, a critical part of data analysis and having that person, like, trust the source and trust the the person doing the analysis is such a factor in that. Um, I guess I just never drank the Kool-Aid that it could be objective is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think the one, and I, I think I agree with you there. I think the one thing that concerns me, right, is I think it leads me to ask the question, like, what role do the data play at all? <laughs> <laughs> well, but surely the people, someone you trust will be someone who has a track record of, you know, disappointing people with results or, you know, like, like the, the reason you trust them isn't because they always convince their audience, right? Or maybe it is, but it's it's that they convince their audience of things they don't want to hear necessarily. Yeah, yeah. And so, like some evidence that the person is more aligned with truth than with some other outcome, whether it's like publishing in a high impact journal or it's like you know convincing the CEO to do something. You see what I mean? Like there's some there's some you have reason to believe that they're very like that they are only <laughs> experiencing <laughs> their aha moment based on that's where the objective relationship with the data lies. You see what I mean? Yeah. 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 Like you trust that they've been moderately unbiased with their approach. This is a topic I'm going to have to think about a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we, will, we will return to this because we're not finished with this discussion. Yeah, but I think I mean, I, I think it's just such a good I'm glad that we came up with those independently because I think it's such a good example of this. Like, yeah, I mean, when you're talking about something like how your thoughts are where there's no way to there's no way besides trusting someone's first person account in order to believe something you know what i mean like yeah yeah it's pretty hard to um like you kind of have to go see it yourself or just really trust someone you're working with in terms of um you know like someone convincing you that mental phenomenon happen and so i feel like it's kind of the same thing here where it's like if you're not going to be the person doing the analysis yourself and obviously you trust yourself although maybe you don't right like but if you're someone who trusts themse- yourself and do, does the analysis yourself, then you can be convinced it's objective. But 
if you're not that person, you're going to have to use this like, you know, secure network or whatever in order to be convinced because you're not going to experience it yourself. Yeah. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe the thing, maybe the thing that's like the first person it's like why you want an expert is you want them to have that first person experience of like, I really believe this was an objective analysis. And like, obviously that's kind of impossible, but they believe they've like accounted for just about everything. Um, and absent doing it, doing it yourself, you're going to have to, and like seeing various evidence for it, but absent doing it yourself, you're just going to have to like, have that leap of faith with them. Yeah, yeah. 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 So maybe that's where the I don't know. I definitely I definitely need to think about more too and I feel like I haven't even been super consistent in my terminology with this <laughs> episode. I, I I feel like myself kind of starting to talk myself into circles a little bit, so I think I might have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Um, no, I think there's a lot here though. I think This is where I just so wish I have so much envy of people who did kind of like um, psychology, like like philosophy of science type stuff, because I feel like they probably have turned these things over a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll get there, Roger. Like (laughs) by the end of this podcast, we have plenty of episodes to come. So. Exactly, yeah. We'll have, like, masters in philosophy of science by the end of this. (laughs) Via articles from The Atlantic. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We'll uh, we'll start, like, Not So Standard Deviations University here, you know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Giving out masters in philosophy. Everyone comes out, like, similar data scientists, but more confusing when they're talking (laughs) to people. (laughs) Yeah, right. And they're like talking about neuroscience and first person experience and anyway. Yeah, it's gonna be a pretty messed up university. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I understand you have some free advertising. You would I like do have free it's funny provide. that you should bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> so actually I've thought about this like a while ago and I've I think I just forgot to bring it up in previous episodes, but um, I'm reading a book now that it's called The Dictator's Handbook. Oh, Um, I've heard of this. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And for people, and conveniently for people who don't like to read books, um, there is a very nice YouTube video uh, done by CGP Grey called The Rules for Rulers, uh, which kind of like summarizes the main points of the book. It's a really, I mean, both are good, but if you don't have time for the book, just watch the video. Um, and uh, so, do you know anything about it? Or no, no, you should I describe. Mean, the basic premise of the book is that um, leaders of any kind, whether you're a democratic leader or dictator or whatever, uh, essentially follow the same rules, um, and the, and they all share the same goal, which is to stay in power. And so, um, and the only difference between different types of leaders across, you know, whether it's like in corporate America or in in political in the political area, is how big kind of like their coalition is that they need to um, make happy in order to stay in power, basically. Um, and so um, in democracies, you typically have a huge coalition that you have to make happy. And so that leads to kind of like different behaviors as opposed to like a dictatorship 
where you have a really tiny, you often have a very tiny coalition. It might just be like your family um, that you need to keep happy. Uh, and so then that leads to different kinds of behaviors. And so anyway, it's a, it's an interesting book. I think it's a particularly interesting book to kind of like analyze our current kind of situation. Um, and, uh, and to kind of like understand the kinds of decision making that goes on, uh, in, within, you know, in leadership and governments, things like that. So, um, I'm enjoying it. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm most of the way through. So this is a sabbatical activity. But in, well, this is just, <laughs> it doesn't have anything directly to do with my sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like hashtag sabbatical life. Like. <laughs> what, that I get to read a book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I see. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I read at other times too. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'll put a link in for the book and for the YouTube video by CGP Gray. So Cool. Awesome. So I think uh, that's our episode uh, for today. Uh, if you want to reach us, you can tweet us at NSS Deviations on Twitter, uh, or you can email us at NSS Deviations at gmail.com.